This is Ken Paulson from Americana Music News and WMOT, and we are so glad that the great Daryl Scott has dropped by today, and, and he's got a canine companion. Yeah, this is Miller. Miller. Yeah, named Miller. after a good friend of mine, a musician friend. Miller behaves really well in he, a in a record in a radio station. I know he's. This is probably his first station that he's been to that I can think of. But he's always been this kind of mellow, even when he was a two-month-old pop. He was like, just way mature for his little time. You know. Does he reflect his his owner? You know, I I would say my wife would say that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But he's also his his favorite person on earth is my wife. Oh, okay. And and she's not as contemplative as I am. Mm. And uh, so it's just his way. He's mm. just quiet and observing. And what you see right there, which is him lying on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first part at, at least describes you. I'm not sure about your lying down habits, but <laughs> uh, so um, this is a time for regrouping in your career. And in other words, you're you have no current product, as they say. Uh, you had the live album from Station Inn earlier this year. Yeah, that came out, and that was a bluegrass band, but my, my version of a bluegrass band, which is bluegrass instrumentation, bluegrass background, but kind of busting it, uh, busting it open a little bit, I think. And how do you then, you know, how do you decide it's time for a studio album? Well, well right now, for example, I'm working on two albums, two studio albums. And they almost couldn't be different, more different. One is a Hank Williams record. Uh, I grew up on Hank Williams music. My dad was a huge Hank Williams fan and Johnny Cash. Those were his two North and South poles. And, and I got full education of both camps. Uh, and I, was, I always heard Hank songs in a different way anyway than my dad. Like, like, like the Waylon song, I'm not sure done it this way type of thing um, great songs don't have a shelf life mm-hmm. great songs like Hank Williams songs can be done by um, oh, uh, a punk band a honky-tonk band a blues band a rockin' thing it just runs the gamut so I'm kind of putting a, a blues electric kind of spin to Hank Williams songs so that's what I'm working on very cool. Uh, on, that's one of my records that I'm working on. Yeah. You know, uh, it's remarkable to look at the number of people and the kinds of people who have recorded Hank Williams records. There's one memorable one by Del Shannon. You know. Is uh, that right? Yeah. It's it's uh, because, as you say, it crosses all boundaries. Tony Bennett. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and Hank Williams songs. Uh, on the right end today, I was I was listening to MOT and I heard uh, Towns Van Zandt, of course, doing. Uh, Hank Williams song "Honky Tonkin," uh, so yeah, it great songs just don't have a shelf life of, you know, four years or even the lifetime of the artist who wrote it. And is the other album all original stuff then? Uh, all Hank original stuff. No, but that's Hank. You said you're working on two albums. Oh, and the other one is is all original stuff. Yeah, yeah, that one. Well, I do have a Woody Guthrie song on there. Really? Yeah. Uh, uh, Deportees. Oh, fabulous. You know that one? Absolutely. And yeah. That, and that's one, what was that? Uh, I guess Joan Baez did that. Yeah. And it turns out, I once I wanted to do it, I started researching who else has done it. A lot of folks have done it. It's, uh, it's that body of work is really, Woody Guthrie wrote a lot of very topical songs, but yeah. also some timeless ones. 
Absolutely. There's another example of great song that won't have just a shelf life of Woody's lifetime. You know, it, it, we're going to be singing This Land Is Your Land, uh, you know, for decades, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and I think the and Hank's songs are going to be that way too. Uh, I just think that's part of what a great song is. It, it stays around. It's funny, I, was, I saw a video the other day of Pete Seeger talking about this land and he said it was a stiff. No one played it or listened to it. Is that right? And for years, but it had made its way into children's uh, songbooks yeah. in grade schools. And suddenly teachers began teaching that song. Of course, it had none of the uh, subversive lyrics that <laughs> Woody uh -huh. had about land ownership. Uh -huh. But he said then suddenly we looked up and everybody in America was singing this song. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard, I was at a festival up in uh, Michigan a week ago, and, and uh, there was a, a Latino group from East L.A., and they did This cool. Land is Your Land. That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. And, and so, yeah, songs, songs have a life of their own beyond the PR campaign, beyond the publisher, beyond the life even of the, the writer in, in a lot of cases. So... In talking about doing two projects at once, this is the this is the mo of an independent man who doesn't have to report to a major record company. Yeah, that's for sure. And I've always kind of done that. Um, I've always been that independent man uh, toward my music. I did have a record deal way back in 1990. M major record deal, you know, full tilt budget, full producer this that you know, everything about it was full tilt out of New York kind of a pop deal I suppose and uh, before I even moved to Nashville and and I kind of learned from that I kind of had a brush with the the big-time label stuff and while it's a great way to go if you get their support but I also noticed that as you give get support and receive re, uh, support from people like say money they also have opinions and directions and that comes with the territory too so if you want their money you also have to put up with their and by the way we want you to be this sound or we're thinking of having you go out in this fashion as a, as a touring thing and so I after that record never came out and it was just fizzled away I just thought I can't do that to myself anymore I, the, literally energetically speaking it's it is crushing to, to work on a record for, say, two years, put your life on the line, your time, your energy, your wife's, your family's, everything about it, and then just sort of in a five-minute boardroom meeting, they decide not to put it out. And that happens constantly. So when I moved to Nashville, I realized that is the story of me and my, my companion writers and artists in town is the, the, the sense of, uh, of business failures. We, it's, it's those of us who get beyond that and don't just cash in the chips and, and change our vocation that says, I'm in this for the count. I wasn't in this just for the, the record deal. Yeah, well said. And so I finally I figured that out. And so I've been an independent approach since about 1995. So what was your very first paycheck as a young professional? Uh, well, I've I've been playing in clubs since I was about fourteen, because <laughs> my dad ran a band, wow. a honky tonk country band, 
And so I, you know, was his pedal steel player and guitar player and this, that, and the other. And so were my brothers, actually. So I grew up in it. So I, I guess, well, the first time I remember actually having enough money to buy a really good guitar, I was 15 up in uh, um, Alaska during the pipeline boom. And we are playing a place six nights a week and, and a Saturday matinee as well. Just a bar. Rough, rough uh, times. 1975, uh, Alaska was a rough place. And uh, I saved up enough money, though, to get, um, you know, my first guitar that I bought for myself, a Telecaster. Uh, so I would, maybe that's where I would say is at 15. You know, I think every kid who grows up with a dad as a band leader or professional musician thinks, well, I'm going to do that too, and a certain percentage of them have zero talent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Was there a, a moment when your dad looked at you and said, hey, you know, you're really good? You know, my dad, <clears throat> it's funny, music for me and my brothers, uh, and, and, and my dad kind of raised us. My mom and dad divorced twice. They got back together and divorced a second time, and he had custody of us. And music was our binding thing, like some families bowl or play baseball or whatever. For us, it was music. So the music wish started from my dad. And he passed it right down to every single one of my brothers. Uh, and, um, and that was just part of growing up with my dad was you are going to, you know, you're going to know Luther Perkins' guitar playing from Johnny Cash. You know, you're going to know uh, Hank Williams' songs. You're going to know Merle Haggard and who was the lead player and who was the steel player and all that, who wrote the songs. And I would scour, you know, the records of country records like some people scoured the rock records right. of the time. Are, are you and your brothers all comparably talented? Yeah, yeah, very much. <laughs> we make a band. And my dad sort of uh, got that going. I mean, there's a drummer brother, there's a piano brother, there's a guitar <laughs> brother. There was a bass but I, I was the bass player because I had an older brother who was a phenomenal uh, guitar player. Mm -hmm. He was a Jerry Reed and Chet Atkins style. Mm -hmm. And that meant that he's the lead guitarist of the family band, and I'm the bass player. But the bass was a great starting point instrument in, a, in the band because, you know, I'd play the, so to speak, the simple compositions of Hank Williams and Johnny Cash, Mo Haggard, whatever, with my dad. But then there's my brother learning Jerry Reed and, you know, the far out Chet Atkins musicality. Mm. And, and I have to try to keep up with him on the bass. And so it was a great starting point. It was learning to play bass behind, uh, you know, Jerry Reed and Chet Atkins songs right in there with uh, Johnny Cash stuff. You could have been the Jacksons of country and Americana. Well, you know, it's even crazier. The Jacksons grew up in Gary, Indiana. We grew up in East Gary, Indiana. Oh, wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally different musicality, certainly. There's, a, yeah. there's an alternate universe in which you are the king of pop. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's me. So, <laughs> so um, you are not. You're a fine songwriter. You are not yet a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. That's mm -hmm. always a possibility. But I don't know if you know this. When you get elected to that, you have to pick out a single song that is engraved in the sidewalk outside the really the convention center here in Nashville. Wow, I did not know that. So, if you were asked to do that. What song would it be? I think it would be uh, You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive. Yeah. I think that's what it would be because uh, that's a, 
an amazingly personal song. It, here's one of the ironies of this business or, or this world to me. So I, I'm write, I write one of the most personal songs I've ever written, You'll Never Leave Harlan Live, and it's about how my grandfather era, let's say early 1900s, moved from coal mining of Harlan County, Kentucky, to poor farming, tobacco farming of uh, Barville, Kentucky. Um, and I, that's really what the song is about, is, is, is that moving of a family. And, and I mentioned my great-grandparents' names, uh, rivers, mountains. There's, it's very specific. And I did it that for those reasons. And then it turns out to be, it's my most recorded song. Uh, Brad Paisley has recorded it, Patti Loveless. Uh, Dale McCurry has recorded it. And it plays a pivotal role in Justified. Right, it's been on TV stuff. Folks in Ireland and Wales do the song. Bluegrass bands in uh, Colorado do the song. So it, I, I'm still trying to figure out why a very personal song becomes that kind of uh, universal uh, possibility. Let's uh, we'll take a moment and listen to You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive. In the deep, dark hills of eastern Kentucky That's the place where I trace my bloodline And it's there I read on a hillside gravestone You will never leave Harlan Well, my granddad's dad walked down Catherine's Mountain And he asked Tilly Hilton to be his bride Said, oh, won't you walk with me Out of the mouth of this holler Or we'll never leave a heart alive Where the sun comes up about ten in the morning and the sun goes down about three in the day and you fill your cup with whatever bitter brew you're drinking you spend your life just thinking of how to get away that was you'll never leave harlan alive from Daryl Scott, who also happens to be in the studio with us right now. Um, you mentioned that it was a personal song. Are songs like that easier to write? I th uh, that's a good question. I don't know that they're easier, but you, you kind of know there can be a blueprint, meaning in this one it was to tell the truth, and it's chronological, and it's really, it's very true to my family story up until the last verse. And the last verse is where the writer came in, wrapped up the song, uh, and uh, did something different than what actually happened. So in the last verse there, it was, uh, but the times got hard and the tobacco wasn't selling, and old grandpa knew what he would, he'd do to survive. He went and dug for Harlan Cole, sent the money back to Granny, but he never left Harlan alive. That never happened. Yeah. What happened was, uh, <clears throat> 
this this great grandfather of mine was kicked out of the family. He did something wrong or bad to the times, and like a lot of families or religions or countries can do, which is to excommunicate somebody who used to be in their midst. Uh, and that's what happened to my great-grandfather. And the family was never to talk about him again. So there's no history, there's no, and he remarried, and these are, this, these are our third cousins, and none of that. It was an excommunication to the fullest extent. And here I am 100 years later, trying to understand what happened to him, and no one will tell me anything. And the, end, the one detail I know about him was that he was a musician. So it piqued my interest, like, oh, so my great-grandfather was played the banjo and taught music to, to folks in school and this and that back in the day. So I'm already interested in him, you know. So what I did with the song was gave him a dignified ending that he did not have in real life. Uh, so I put him back in the mines where he's sending money back to the family, which was more dignified than what happened. Wow, that's and a good so, story. And so that's that's what we can do as writers. We we can change uh, the storyline, and that's the difference between me telling just a full blown almost uh, journal approach to songwriting, for, and just because I got to say it, and here's how it happened, versus I'm a songwriter. The songwriter is shaping it to be the best song I can. And so that song is 100% true until the last verse. And then it's true to the songwriting, my muscles or my inclinations toward, toward that kind of shaping. Clearly you have a reverence for family. And uh, I'm sure much of your career was inspired, as you say, by your dad. Did you ever get a chance to write with your dad? I had uh, two really good occasions. One, I was about 16, and, and I have four brothers. And normally, if you were with your dad, it'd be with all the brothers, too. But one weekend, only one, he rented a cabin up in Big Bear, uh, California. We were living down in the San Bernardino area. Big Bear was a place to go to rent a cabin and that kind of thing, chateaus or whatever kind of stuff uh, for California. And it was just the two of us. And we went there for the sole purpose to write songs. Mm. So I was 16 and there's my dad. Uh, he had a song started uh, that I helped him finish and I had a song started that he helped me finish. And both those songs, it's funny, so I wrote that when I was 16, possibly 17, and I put it on an album when I turned 50. I did an album <laughs> called uh, uh, Long Ride Home. <laughs> and both of those songs are, are on that record. Um, and uh, I love that. I love that. And then the other time I got to write with Dad was not us sitting in a room. He gave me a lyric uh, notebook of his for Christmas one year, maybe 15 years ago, maybe 20. And uh, in there was every lyric that he thought, it was him editing, of course, that he thought was his, you know, they were done. They were good, he was proud of them, you know. But no music, it was all lyrics. But I remember the melodies to like all of them, except there was one. And that one was, um, basically he wrote it in 1964. I know he was writing it about sending his, uh, then he had four boys, 
we were all young, you know, 64, I was five years old. My older brothers would have been eight and 11. But the, the inclination was, hey, I'm going to be sending my boys to this war, and they're going to, you know, be shot at, and they're going to shoot. And, and I know that was disturbing him, and so he wrote the lyrics to, uh, uh, with a memory like mine, uh, which is, when I found this lyric in this notebook, it was like, whoa, that's really good. I mean, I know he's my dad and all that, but it was just purely a really good writing. And so I put a tune to it, and then, again, the songwriter in me steps in and says, I'm working on a song here. This song needs an ending. So I wrote a last verse to it. Uh, and then that's, that's my second batch of co-writing with my dad. And which album does that show up on? Let's see. Wow, that's a good question. That that's on a Tim O'Brien and Daryl Scott record. Okay. Called Real Time. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I've recorded it since then too, uh, live in NC. I put it on that, and I play it all the time in shows. Uh, and and so that's my second co-write. Let's let our listeners hear it now. Yeah. This is a song I wrote. I took my dad's lyric and put a tune to it. Had a banjo in my hand as I did it and um, added a last verse to it so it's a co-write with the old man called With a Memory Like Mine. I can see the train coming Watch that big light shine his way Hear that whistle Dad's name was Wayne Scott. Wayne Scott. So it's a Daryl and Wayne Scott composition. Yes, it is. Is he signed? Was he signed anywhere? <laughs> no. See, that's the funny thing about my dad. He had all the artistic inclination. He had all of that vision of you know, Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, all of that, fully, uh, back right into the tobacco growing days of you know, gathered around the. The radio uh, on Saturday night to listen to the Opry and all of that kind of stuff. He had no idea how to do anything toward business, uh, having to do with the music business. Zero idea. I'll give you a story. Our first vacation, we were living up in northern Indiana. My dad was then a steel mill worker, so he would, that's why we were living on. Um, it's called East Gary, but my, it's right up there and all that steel mill work. And um, the first vacation we ever took was 1965, uh, and it was to Nashville, Tennessee, because my parents had grown up on the Opry, listening to it, and Marty Robbins and you know Johnny Cash, all of that were heroes in my house. And so we had our first vacation and went to the Ryman, to the Opry, and go down on Broadway, and there'd be you know almost carnies outside, you know, pushing their 
their records or a little boy my age in a white hat, you know, singing in, in a bullhorn. I saw all of that kind of stuff. Um, so we spent a few vacations that way in the summers. And then we made a couple of little records in about 1967 up in Gary, Indiana. And one time on the, one of those vacations, my mom dressed up and went around to DECA and RCA and Capitol. You know, there that's four or five places at the time. Going through the front door with no appointments. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, with my dad's record and uh, just saying, hey, uh, my, my husband and sons made this record. Uh, you know, and that was, and that's it. There's not a part two. Yeah. So my dad had not even a clue as yeah. to, uh, to the business. No, and never had a publishing deal, never knew anything about any of that kind yeah. of stuff. So you learned it yourself? Yeah, I learned it myself. Um, by accident, but by falling in forward, face first into things, and, and kind of learning about it myself. And it kind of took, um, my real education came in, well, part one was doing a record deal up in New York and it, having it fail, having it not even come out. That was a pretty good, you know, that was probably my master's degree. And yeah. then the PhD came uh, by me coming down to Nashville um, and starting down here as a player, you know, so uh, the, f the first things I did in town after a year of doing nothing because no one knew me were uh, jingles. Mm -hmm. So I would play uh, jingles here in Nashville uh, and get my foot in the door on sessions and the next thing you know I'm doing publishing demos, the next thing you, you know a few years go by. And so it's just very accidental in the studio world and at the same time the publishing world because I'd had the deal up in New York, uh, EMI here in Nashville said, well, you know, you guys are not working with him there in New York, we'll take him down here. So they kind of brought me into the EMI publishing world. Uh, and some of my, uh, you know, the, my heroes and the people kind of watching out for me were Guy Clark, mm. uh, Verlin Thompson, um, and the other person I knew, I knew two other people, Sam Bush and Bill Miller. Wow. And so that's a pretty strong that, team. If you know that, <laughs> those guys, yeah. you know that's a pretty individualistic situation. They're, and so they were my coaches of sorts, um, or at least my guides. Uh, and so that's where I started in the publishing world. Um, and then just one foot in front of the other, uh, not having a plan, how, how would I know how to do a plan right. other than, you know, starting? So was Great Day to Be Alive a tipping point of sorts for you? It was a pretty good one uh, in that the Travis Tritt version is the fourth, re uh, fourth recording of that song by a major artist, or by this saying, someone with a major deal. <laughs> Three other times it had been recorded, because I guess folks could hear something in it, but then they'd lose their deals too, or oh. it, the records would never came out. Travis was the first, other than me, I, I had it on my first record here in Nashville, uh, but Travis was the first one that it went the full gamut. Like, yes, he recorded it, uh, yes, it's on the album, and well, well look now, now it's a, it's a single. So that was the first one that did that in that kind of big way. Yeah, that was a turning point. Let's, uh, let's hear a great day. Yeah.
I got rice cooking in the microwave. I got a three-day beard I don't plan to shave. And it's a, a goofy thing, but I just gotta say, hey, I'm doing all right. Yeah, I think I'll make me some homemade soup. I'm feeling pretty good, and that's the truth. It's neither drink nor drug induced. No, I'm just doing all right. And it's a great day to be alive I know the sun's still shining when I close my eyes It's a, a hard times in the neighborhood But why can't every day be just this good? You had to be pretty happy with that recording? Yeah, the recording yeah. that Travis Tritt did. Oh, absolutely. Uh you know, it's funny, I saw a video back in the day that Travis did of that song, too, and I kind of really got it from the video uh, about it, just the energy, and I also worked with Travis on it. He, had, he wanted to change a couple of lines, um, and uh, which I think is fair game. I mean, I changed my own lines. Right. I changed Hank Williams' lines or the chords in a Hank Williams song to, to do what I want to do or whatever. So from an artistic point of view, no problem. But I literally didn't know, like, does this mean it, that Travis is a co-writer now? I <laughs> honestly didn't know. Yeah. So you know who I called was Guy Clark. Huh. Because I remember Guy's cut of Heartbroke with Ricky Skaggs. And Skaggs had changed a couple of lines in there. So I knew there was a precedent for this. And Guy had some experience about it. So I called Guy. Um, to say, hey, what goes on in this situation? When someone changes a line, are they a co-writer? I mean, how, how does this work? I, I just didn't know. Huh. And he said, no. Uh, Skaggs can do it the way he wants, and I'll do it the way I want. Travis Tritt does it the way he wants. You do it the way you want. It's Everything's fair, and there's no co-writing hmm. situation about it. That's a pretty good mentor. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was great. Well... You tell great stories, uh, and uh, and uh, actually, the conversation um, could go on forever. You've got this rich career, and thankfully, you've produced a lot of rich music. Oddly enough, we're having this conversation at a radio station when you have, as we said earlier, no new album. So I need to tell the audience that given no new album, you, <laughs> si you simply need to buy everything Daryl has ever recorded. Uh, I know I have, and uh, it's... Uh, it's a rich body of work, and and I, I will say amazingly consistent. You know, it's um, it's not like you had um, this is my disco album, or this is you know there's a Daryl Scott approach to music, and you can count on that each and every album. Wow, that's that's good to hear, Ken. I appreciate that. Um, I don't have a plan about that, but I, I appreciate that that might be a result. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think. The more you write from your heart, and the more you perform, uh, reflecting that, you know, you get a continuity that a lot of artists don't have. Yeah, yeah. Daryl, always a pleasure to be with you, and um, thank you. Thank you, Ken Paulson. It's been a pleasure. American Music News is a podcast produced by Sprinter Media, music by Dave Paulson, and you can reach us at amneditor at gmail.com. <laughs>